Hello, I'm Billy Jacobson, a partner at Allen & Overy focusing on white-collar criminal work, including FCPA defense, investigations, and compliance. This is a part of a series of web chats that usually focus on anti-corruption issues. However, given the events at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, we're taking a different tack today. I'm joined by Andy Wise, a partner at Miller & Chevalier in D.C. and a former public defender in the district, and John Jeffress, a partner at Kaiser Dillon and a former federal public defender in D.C. Andy and I were both involved in the so-called J-20 case in which we defended pro bono protesters charged on Inauguration Day 2017 with rioting in D.C. And we'll be referencing those prosecutions a bit today. John, while with the Federal Public Defender Service, represented several individuals charged with trespass and other crimes on federal grounds. Today, we'll talk a bit about the types of charges the Capitol rioters are facing and will face, including the elements of those charges, some potential defenses they may have, some evidentiary issues that will likely arise, and some pitfalls prosecutors will want to avoid in pursuing these cases. Welcome, gents. Thank you, Billy. Always happy to join you, although it's unfortunate that we're convening to discuss these particular issues at this time. Andy, let's start with you by discussing briefly the unique ability of the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office to bring charges either in superior court or federal court and your view on where the Capitol rioters will end up being charged and tried. Sure. So we understand from some of the recent news reports and some of the statements that have been made so far by the Department of Justice that the federal prosecutions are being consolidated, at least for the moment, in the District of Columbia, which of course makes sense given um, the location of where these events happen. This is a unique jurisdiction, though, in that regard, because D.C. Uh, has a U.S. Attorney's Office, which brings cases both in the D.C. Superior Court and in the U.S. District Court. So the D.C. Superior Court is really akin to the state court in the, in the states around the country. It is also a jurisdiction that has both the U.S. Attorney's Office and an elected prosecutor, the D.C. Attorney General's Office, Carl Racine which does have the jurisdiction to prosecute some criminal offenses that are relevant to these issues, including disorderly conduct and unregistered firearm and ammunition offenses. So traditionally, these types of cases have been brought by the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the election has been, do we bring them in superior court or in federal court? And in a second, I'll turn it over to John to speak to the kind of traditional charging decisions in these cases, even though this is certainly far from a traditional case. But I think what you're going to see is a lot of consideration within the U.S. Attorney's Office about where to bring these cases and what the delineation should be between something that's brought in superior court under a D.C. code offense or in the district court under a U.S. code offense. So, John, let me throw it over to you to talk about kind of how these things have been traditionally handled. Thanks, Andy. Uh, that's absolutely right in terms of the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Washington, D.C., having this unique ability to bring cases both locally and federally and, you know, the enormous amount of discretion they have to make that decision, given that, you know, oftentimes federal charges carry much more serious penalties. Choosing the forum uh, in which to bring the charge can really dictate a lot about what's going to happen to that particular defendant in terms of the seriousness of the offense and whether and how much time that person might spend in prison. 
And it's very interesting because this evolves will be how the U.S. Attorney's Office, Michael Sherwin in particular, the current U.S. Attorney, makes the decision to uh, draw those lines because it's pretty much unfettered discretion given the number of different statutes he has available both federally and locally uh, to determine where these people go. Let's turn to some of those statutes. In focusing on specific crimes with which the rioters may be charged, there's been a lot of discussion in the media and from DOJ officials, including uh, the current U.S. attorney, Michael Sherwin, about sedition charges. Sedition cases, though, are really rare. We found just four instances of defendants being convicted under sedition charges, three cases involving Puerto Rican nationalists and one case having to do with the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Very briefly, the seditious conspiracy statute, in the most relevant part, requires the government to prove that the defendants intended to overthrow, put or destroy by force the government of the U.S., or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay execution of any law of the U.S. Another statute outlawing rebellion or insurrection insurrection has also been noted by the U.S. attorney, Michael Sherwin, criminalizes engaging in a rebellion or insurrection, but doesn't define either of those terms. And we've been unable to find any instance where this charge has been brought. One can quickly see that individual defendants will probably seek to establish that they never had the intent to do either of these things, that they were not attempting to overthrow the United States. They were simply protesting the action Congress was taking on January 6th. And while there may have been violence, they didn't intend to destroy the government or even oppose the authority of the government. They may have to concede, some of them, that they forcibly entered the Capitol, but claim that they did so simply to protest inside to make their voices heard directly by lawmakers. And certainly with some defendants, the government will have evidence to the contrary. There will likely be plenty of bombast posted online that prosecutors may point to. But one concern I have is the U.S. Attorney's Office overcharging the case and charging defendants with some of these sedition, insurrection-type crimes when they also have proof that these defendants engaged in one of the offenses that, John, you'll talk about in a moment, which require much less of a heavy uh, intent standard uh, and which would be probably much more provable. There are the statutes that are designed essentially to protect federal buildings and grounds. Those are obviously going to be at the forefront of this, especially for the defendants on the lower end of the culpability scale. I mean, just to step back for a second, I think the culpability of these defendants, there is going to be an extremely broad range, obviously. We have people who were engaged in legitimate protests who may have been swept along into the Capitol as part of what was essentially political activities and had no intent to destroy any property or anything like that, all the way to people who assaulted and then, you know, ultimately it appears murdered a federal officer. So, and then maybe even, you know, attempts at kidnapping, who knows what else, uh, lawmakers. Uh, so, I mean, we're just dealing with about a range of culpability that's about as broad as you could possibly imagine. On the lowest end of that, I think we're dealing with the statutes that protect federal property from trespass, essentially. And that starts with 18 U.S.C. 1752, which is the chief federal statute protecting restricted buildings or grounds. I think a number of these subsections might be at issue here. You know, whoever enters or remains in any restricted building without lawful authority to do so. Although there's a very interesting question on that I heard one of the defense lawyers um, raise last night, which is if the president tells you to go there, does that give you lawful authority to do so? And then intent to impede or disrupt the orderly conduct of government business or official functions. That's obviously going to be 
probably used very heavily here, considering that the purpose of the protest was to uh, impede the counting of the Electoral College votes. There are others. I mean, you also have in the seldom used Title 40 in criminal cases, you have 5104E2, uh, which prohibits da dangerous weapons in, in federal facilities. Uh, you have 5104 you know, 510, Title 40, 5104 has a bunch of different things that you're just not allowed to do in federal grounds, ranging from more innocuous activities to violent activities and weapon possession and so forth. So those will definitely all be at issue here. I think you raise a really good point. Just the fact that three of us are sitting on a podcast talking about application of sedition and insurrection charges against the president of the United States and others acting at his behest and direction is, you know, something that I think we would have seen as kind of unforeseeable. Um, and so part of what we're going to see, I think, in the sorting of these cases, and, and remember that we are at such an early stage, right? There have been a number of people arrested across the country in various jurisdictions and, and facing extradition now to D.C., but how these cases are going to develop and what the theories are going to be will be something that will change a lot over the next two or three months. And federal prosecutors and perhaps the D.C. Attorney General's office are really in uncharted territory in terms of deciding how to apply some of these statutes, how to do it in an era where social media and video has become such a huge part of the prosecution of these cases. I mean, 20 years ago, you didn't have 3,000 people filming every aspect of this on their phones, and prosecutors didn't have access to that type of evidence. They will now. And I think you make a good point that it will be important not to misuse or overcharge some of these cases. I mean, we've seen some of the instances that really inflame passions rightly, right? The individual that's carrying the Confederate flag through the Capitol Rotunda, the guy who's wearing the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt. But the real question as prosecutors think about what to charge these individuals with, both of whom have already been arrested, is what is the evidence of their intent? What is their evidence of their involvement? You know, are prosecutors going to go out on a limb if individuals who are engaged in offensive speech are charged with something that is much greater than that, even if and where the evidence doesn't support it? I have no idea whether the evidence will, right? We just don't know yet other than some of the images that have been posted. But I think you raise a really good question. Yeah, and the idea of uh, 20 years ago, the video evidence not being nearly as extensive as it is in this case now is also an important one. You know, we know that the Capitol Police were overwhelmed. MPD, the D.C. Police Department, came in to help out, but they were quickly overwhelmed as well. And so few arrests were made at the time. So if it was 20 years ago, it would probably be only those who were able to be arrested on the site that would be facing charges, potentially. I mean, they, others, some of them may flip on others and implicate others, but the idea now that the prosecutors and the FBI and all the other law enforcement agencies can now comb through just unlimited amounts of video to locate people and then cross-reference social media and identify these people is a really, really powerful tool. And we know that that's happening as we speak. Andy, would you say a few words about the Capitol Police officer who was tragically killed and so we expect probably a murder charge, a felony murder charge. Will you speak to that briefly? Sure. So obviously one of the most powerful arrows that a prosecutor has in their quiver is the murder statute. And with the death of the officer and some of the video that demonstrates 
the violent assaults on other officers, I think murder in some form is certainly going to be part of the charging conversation. The federal murder statute includes a felony murder provision that identifies a number of underlying felonies that can be used to charge individuals who participated in the action, even if they weren't the one who struck the officer with murder. And one of the underlying felonies is burglary. And I think based on what we've seen, there's certainly a potential case that individuals who entered the Capitol did it with the intent to commit a crime, whether that is to steal, to disrupt a proceeding, to do other things that would qualify to make the entry itself a burglary. And so you could see murder charges, I think, considered against people outside of the small ring of individuals who are going to be able to be proven to have had physical contact with the officer who then died. I think you also see potentially in the realm of not only the murder potential charges, but also other charges, other theories like aiding and abetting and accessory after the fact, which are often used to try to tie in actors other than the principals and charge them equivalently to principles. And I think you'll see those theories employed in the context of not only the murder charge, but also other charges that come out of the violent conduct that the prosecutors are able to garner evidence of. The felony murder charge is another area where the government may be tempted to charge lots of people in order to feel that they are doing what they can to vindicate the life of this Capitol Police officer, but may well overcharge in that respect. It's another area where they ought to be really careful. And it's going to be a super hard decision for them, obviously, but they should nevertheless be careful about making sure that they don't overcharge that offense as well, I think. What we probably really have here is not one big conspiracy, but you know several different small conspiracies. And it looked like there may have been some planning activity with respect to some of the more serious groups there. And as, you know, as they analyzed those communications with these different groups, seeing if they actually did plan on violence and even murder that day, that would be, for me, the only thing that would really justify use of those statutes, the felony murder statutes. Now, there may be just direct murder. You know, they have these people engaging in the murder of a police officer and wouldn't need to use that rule. But, but we'll see. One other interesting element, I think, Billy, is that, you know, in all prosecutions, prosecutors will say that part of the goal of bringing the case is not only to punish the activity, but also to deter future activity. And part of what is already the narrative that has been very much in the discussion over the last week is the idea that planning continues for other similar attacks. And some of these communications have been driven underground by the closing of some platforms like Facebook and Parler, but that there's still a threat. And I have to imagine the prosecutors, as they contemplate some of the tools that they have to go after this conduct are trying to decide which potential charges, which court is used, what theories are employed, and how that fits into the idea of trying to deter future conduct. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Another offense that protesters may be faced with is uh, rioting. There's a federal riot charge and a charge under the D.C. Code. The Inauguration Day protesters were charged under the D.C. Code and tried in Superior Court. The statutes, the, the D.C. Code statute and the federal statute, are quite similar and require proof that the protesters intended there to be a riot, whether or not the individual defendants took a violent act. If the defendants incited the riot, promoted the riot, egged it on, they can be charged. And a riot is essentially, uh, for those that don't know, any public disturbance involving violence 
by one or more persons resulting in damage or injury or threat of the same. While those not actually engaging in violence or property damage may be charged with rioting, we saw in the inauguration day cases that a DC jury may well not convict anyone not actually engaged in violence. There were two trials in that set of cases, and all of the defendants not accused of being violent were acquitted. The rest, by the way, resulted in hung juries and were ultimately dismissed, largely due to discovery violations by the U.S. Attorney's Office, which we'll get to in a moment. Andy, do you have any thoughts on the riot charge having been involved in the inauguration day cases as well? I think the way you've described it is right on, and I think it presents some really interesting questions in regards to these cases, right? The idea that you could be liable for a riot because you took kind of a supporting or encouraging role makes that statute a powerful tool, even though those juries rejected it. And when you watch the video of some of the stuff that's going on outside the Capitol building that day, I think my guess is that you will see instances where there were people who came with the intent to protest in a peaceful manner. And you may see a lot of situations where some of those individuals then got very caught up in the moment and were then cheering on some of the more violent conduct, which would then expose them to potential criminal prosecution in ways that they would not have been exposed had things not turned violent and had the mood of the day not changed. I think that statute is going to be a big part of these prosecutions. And one of the questions will be if these cases get to juries. I mean, D.C. juries really, I think, as the inauguration cases show, D.C. juries are a skeptical Skeptical is not the right word. It is a jury pool that really does look at individual evidence, by and large. And, you know, some of the verdicts in that case, I think, demonstrate the independence that D.C. juries often bring to the consideration of these cases. But these cases are going to be different, right? The video is so appalling. And some of the proof that prosecutors are going to be able to muster is going to be a real challenge for judges to regulate what gets to juries, for juries to really look at. And and I think you're probably going to see a ton of efforts to move cases out of D.C. by defense lawyers. I mean, John can speak more than most to the dynamics of D.C. juries, having tried as many cases as he has. But I think it's going to be an interesting set of dynamics. On that, it's a very interesting intersection of two things, which is one, Andy, you're absolutely right. The D.C. jurors are sophisticated and look at the evidence very closely and are skeptical of prosecutors in ways that most jurors are not. But the J-20 cases, of course, were uh, anti-Trump demonstrations, and these were, of course, pro-Trump demonstrations. And I think D.C. was a 92 percent for Biden this year. So it'll be interesting to see which sort of philosophy the political philosophy versus jurors scrutinizing evidence prevails here. But if I was representing one of these individuals in a more serious case, I would probably move for a change of venue, I think. Absolutely. Another difference between the Inauguration Day case, the J-20 case, and the Capitol riot case that I think is important to this point is what the crowd was cheering on. Andy, you hinted at it. In the Inauguration Day case, the video evidence is pretty clear that what the crowd is egging on to the extent they were was the breaking of some store windows and uprooting some newspaper stands. Here, the video evidence is quite compelling that what the crowd is egging on is at least pushing past, at times beating police officers and forcing their way into the United States Capitol. 
And so I think the verbal actions taken by the crowd in the Capitol riot case may well be seen by a jury to be much more egregious, even if individual defendants cannot be proved to have engaged in physical conduct in that regard. Let's move on quickly to some evidentiary issues that will surely arise. And Andy, I'd ask you to say a little bit about the consequences of the government charging many defendants as co-conspirators, as they likely will, whether it's one big conspiracy, which probably wouldn't be a great idea, as John intimated, or individual conspiracy. Right. So I think there are two real implications. One is we often talk about the power of the conspiracy statute because it allows the government to charge various individuals who have agreed to participate in some coordinated effort, and it reaches and then impose harsher sentences on people, even if they had somewhat lesser roles. But the other power of the conspiracy statute that really may become very relevant in these cases is the ability to admit evidence once you have established that individuals participated in a conspiracy. So under the federal rules of evidence, statements of co-conspirators are not hearsay and can be admitted against the defendant once a conspiracy is proven. In a case like this, where a lot will turn on knowledge and intent, and there will be, I would imagine, reams of evidence, whether from social media postings or from accounts of meetings and discussions in advance or during the offenses, if the government can persuade a judge that the charged individuals were part of a conspiracy, they're going to have to defend not only against statements that are attributed to them, but statements that are attributed to dozens and dozens of others, which are going to use incredibly incendiary language and prejudicial comments. And that's going to be a huge dynamic, I think, in the prosecution of these cases. And the government did do that in the Inauguration Day cases. They did charge a conspiracy and they did admit many statements against defendants at trial without being able to prove that the defendants heard. Uh, those statements, never mind participated in them. John, what about the government's discovery obligations after individuals are charged? And how has the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. historically handled those obligations? Well, you know, in general, you have one of the more progressive courts on Brady. Uh, You, of course, have, insofar as federal courts concerned, you have Judge Sullivan, who's sort of one of the leading judges in the country, Judge Freeman, other judges. you know, D.C. Uh, federal court in terms of litigating Brady issues, you have some of the best law available and some of the most receptive audiences. So, I mean, I think the U.S. Attorney's Office takes its obligation very seriously, in my experience, in federal court, at least. Um, now, there are a lot of interesting issues to explore in terms of Brady that these defendants might want to raise. Um, the one thing is, is they were, in fact, welcomed into the Capitol. You know, there is a theory out there. They were welcomed into the Capitol, not just by President Trump, who encouraged them to go there and who apparently has the ability to go there whenever he wants and to take whoever he wants with him. But then there's also these issues to whether certain lawmakers were actually wanting these people to come into the Capitol. And if that's true, then that would overcome some of the elements of the offense that these people would be charged with in terms of unlawful entry or doing things on Capitol grounds that, you know, were not authorized. And so if I'm a lawyer for one of these defendants, I'm going to ask the judge to compel the government to provide me with information about those issues to see whether their presence on Capitol grounds was authorized. And, you know, that would be a very sticky issue for Sherwin and his prosecutors to then go to Republican lawmakers or whoever they might have believed were participating in this in advance and ask for that kind of evidence. Coming through all the social media postings that the prosecutors and the investigators are surely coming through now, 
they're almost definitely going to find lots of incendiary postings, but they're probably also going to find defendants who are posting things that are really innocuous and, you know, alleged co-conspirators who are posting things that are really innocuous. And so is that Brady? Probably. Will the government be able to get its arms around all of that stuff in order to produce it to the defendants the way they ought to? Just from a technical perspective, it's going to be really difficult, I think. Let's talk real quickly, because uh, we're running out of time, about uh, identification. One advantage that the Inauguration Day protesters had at our second trial is that many wore masks during much of the protests. This was three years before COVID. Most of the Capitol rioters did not wear masks during the pandemic, and so were much more identifiable than they otherwise would have been. It's hard to overstate the irony there. Right. We can maybe just leave that. There. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> um, it's, but given that combination of the no masks and the infinite amount of video, there is the potential for so many more arrests and so many more identifications than there were either at the Inauguration Day protests or in cases in the past. Well, gents, thanks so much for joining me for this discussion. We probably could have spent hours on this topic as there's so much to digest and to think through. But hopefully we gave the listeners a taste of what the prosecutors and the defense attorneys are thinking about in this case. And I really appreciate your time. Appreciate the invite. Thank you.